in the ballpark, season 2020, here we go! Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> we have arrived at one of the most exciting weeks in the AFL calendar. It is the week where the last four teams standing battle it out for a chance to put one hand on the Premiership Cup and claim the ultimate glory. Will it be an all-Victorian grand final played interstate for the first time? Will it be the 2004 or perhaps the 2007 Grand Final replay. <laughs> Eight-minute mark, second quarter. The fat lady says the 44-year premiership drought is over. Geelong, 8-7-55. Port, 2-2-14. Surely not even Geelong could lose it from here. Or, like in 2015... Will the beaten reigning premiers go the long way around, rise like a phoenix, and deny the team who defeated them three weeks earlier? The anticipation is palpable. That is why it's one of my favourite weeks in the calendar. Welcome to this week's preliminary final edition of In the Ballpark. I'm your host, Michael Serpel, and it is my pleasure to introduce you to our sumptuous team who will be running through brick walls, climbing foreign objects, jumping through windows like Matt Damon to ensure their aerials are working for this weekend's final action. Introducing the umpire who was so inspired by the aging sporting stars such as LeBron James, Rafael Nadal and Cameron Smith. He put his hand up to replace Razor Ray in the hunt for red and black October representation in the umpiring fraternity. It's Ryan. Give the razor to Sean Connery. Say, what are you talking about? Fryzy Hartwick. Fryzy, welcome to you, mate. Surfers, thank you very much again. Good evening, gents. Great to be here. What an occasion. And yeah, look, I put my hat in the ring to replace uh, Razor. So look, we'll see how we go. Plenty of jumping over obstacles, as you said, this week. Whether or not Razor, the man himself, is back again this week, I'm not sure. But we'll see probably within 24 hours. Oh, wouldn't it be a tasty scene of events should he get the Cats game again, lads? Great to be here. And let's get to the man who knows how many people in the Twitter sphere. In the Twitter sphere. Are fed up with Richmond's fourth straight preliminary finals appearance. And the man who would rather pay $800 for a reliable DeLonghi La Specialista Espresso coffee machine model number. EC9335M, <laughs> rather than paying 800000 plus for an unreliable Jordan DeGoey model number C-double-O-K-E-D, <laughs> it's Maxi Macchiato Latte Tonner. Maxi, welcome to you, mate. 
Thank you, Serbs. That's an excellent introduction. I'm not actually a coffee drinker, though. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'd be spending 800 bucks on a coffee machine, but, yeah, it's good to be back. I reckon prelim finals, as you said, is one of the best weeks in footy of the year. So we've got two great games. And I wanted to ask you, boys, before we get started into it, what's probably your favourite prelim final of the last 10 years? I reckon mine's that Collingwood v Hawthorne prelim final. I think it was 2011. Buddy Franklin, he dribbled that goal along the boundary line. Here comes Buddy. Wheels around. Gathers the football. Oh, he's He's kicked the miracle. He's put it through with the outside of the boot running to the wrong pocket. And then I think it went down the other end and Luke Ball snapped a goal. Ball throws it on the boots and like swan before him. He's kicked a magnificent goal out of that pocket. I reckon that was the best game of the 2011 season as well. But I was going to say, Maxi, I remember the scenes where Alistair Clarkson, right as that siren, when he, he bashed the coach's box and yeah. all this water came know. out. And, oh, gee, very, very angry Alistair that night, that's for sure. <laughs> I was really going for the Hawks because <laughs> being an Essence supporter, you're not too fond of the, well, either side, but especially Colin at that stage, considering that they'd won a premiership in 2010. But, yeah, I was heartbroken when um, Luke Ball kicked that goal. But looking back at it now, it was just such a sensational game. Glad you mentioned that. That was a phenomenal play. That would have said that for sure or any of the other Hawthorne ones. I know we've talked about them before. They had sort of two in the space of three years there, mm. or even three perhaps as well, I think, that were decided by a kick or less. Just unbelievable. Maybe some other honourable mentions. I did think in Richmond's first flag season, although they sort of had the better of the Giants for most of that game, I think everyone knew which way it was going to go. I mm. just remember the noise. Yeah. The scene was just absolutely electric. It was almost a bit surreal. You had to look twice to think, what are we actually seeing? Another honourable that just sprung to mind, and only because we just had... The Cats and um, Collingwood last week, they played a prelim year that, yeah, that's that's the one. Yeah, and it was only about a goal of difference. And then, of course, um, and then, of course, we know that Geelong went on to, um, to demolish Port Adelaide the week after, but that was a cracker as well. The Saints and the Bulldogs played a few close ones as well through that era. Yeah, that Nick Rewalt toe poke. So it couldn't hang on. Loose ball. Guess who? It's only Finning. That's the one. There's ah, oh, there's so many. As you guys said, it's a it's a brilliant week of the of the season that always delivers. I will say on the Richmond GWS one, I remember during the coverage of that game, they had a decibel meter yeah, for how loud the Richmond crowd were getting. And gee whiz, I reckon it was peaking most of the time, especially when Daniel Rioli kicked his goals. It just was going through mm. the roof. It was extraordinary. There would have been no corporates. There would have been like 90,000 Richmond fans. I think we went to a bar that day. The train, we were on a train full of Richmond supporters and then... The Giants cheer squad walked past and there was about 15 of them. So, yeah, it was just packed full of Richmond supporters and not many Giants supporters. So it would have been pretty intimidating for those Giants players. It would have been. And Maxie, we were pretty brave. We wanted to get the full Richmond experience. We went to a pub in Richmond as well. Mm. Good thing we weren't there a week later because it might have been a little bit more no. rowdy. Yeah, I remember it was, it was getting pretty rowdy that night. So I can't imagine that a week later. Talking about some of my favourite prelims, hard to go past one of the modern classics, Western Bulldogs up against the GWS. Giants. Speaking about pubs, gentlemen, I was down at the Wharf Hotel, which is the home away from home for the Western Bulldogs. Whenever the Western Bulldogs play interstate, I remember GWS talking about Heath Shaw kicking goals against your club and feeling a little bit deflated. He kicked this (laughs) massive goal and they got a little bit of breathing space, the Giants. And I thought, gee whiz, is this going to be the moment we're going to get an all Sydney grand final in Melbourne? 
And to the doggies' credit, Marcus Bontempelli's goal where he tapped it onto himself and yeah. kicked it beautifully. Oh, there were some big moments in that preliminary yeah. final, gents. I think Stringer centred it to Dixon. That was centering kick from Jackie Stringer was big as well. It was Stringer. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, that game, serves. Actually, that one totally slipped my mind when trying to trace back to great prelims. I agree. That, that one was, that was as good as any of them. The Bulldogs go through to a grand final. Can you believe it? The siren will sound. Oh well, hopefully we get two crackers like some of the games that we've just spoken about this week. Oh yes. Before we get into all the finals results, this was the second week of the finals that we expected. The total margins equaled to 99 points. And to put it all into perspective, the average winning margin for this week was 49.5 points, which is just over eight straight kicks quite remarkable and hence why i am sitting here today with all of my fingernails intact (laughs) oh yes the footy gods heard me clearly and they've given me another bye week to recover for this week so thank you footy gods (laughs) if you're listening footy gods have looked after you there sir they've given you more than enough to play with uh there for prelim final week which as we said I hope that you'll need it. I hope I do too, honestly. Hoping for some close preliminary finals. Let's get on to the semi-final results. And it all started on Friday, October the 9th. It was the second semi-final. Richmond up against St Kilda at Metricom Stadium. Richmond had a monumental inclusion in big man Tom Lynch returning for his first game of the 2020 final series. It was a big win from the Tigers. It must be said the Saints didn't put enough pressure on them and St Kilda didn't kick straight. Richmond did. And that was the big difference in this game. Fryzy, how big of a difference did Tom Lynch make to this Richmond lineup? Oh, huge. Absolutely huge, guys. I don't know whether or not it's too extreme to say, is he the difference between them actually going all the way and not in these next couple of weeks? I know that they were such a strong side before they even had him, but... It just gives them that extra dimension. I think the way you said it, Serbs, is quite right. They just didn't capitalise the Saints when they needed to. Look, regardless, wonderful season worthy uh, of applause from all, and I'm sure their fans will be just stoked as well. But it did show as well what they miss when big Paddy Ryder and equally big Jake Carlisle are not there. That that hurt, I think. And of course, as, as we would have expected, Dougal Howard and the whole St Kilda defence in general, oh, they just had their work cut out, didn't they? They really did. And we've been praising Dougal Howard all season. And unfortunately, it was quite a difficult battle for him. Speaking about battles, Josh Battle came back. <laughs> Back in the St Kilda side, but it looked like he was niggling and fighting with a foot injury, which we did highlight last week in the show, saying, do they take the risk? Do they bring him in? But yeah, a lot of St Kilda's players, unfortunately, weren't quite up to the level. And all those missed shots, well, they really did haunt them. The Saints were coming in the third term. They really were red hot and they just could not capitalise on those set shots. But guys, it must be said, Richmond don't usually rely on clearances in their game. They're usually a back-half team. It's incredible. They completely turned that around and they became a good contestant side over the weekend, especially winning those clearances against the Saints. Yeah, I think that really showed how much the Saints missed Paddy Ryder, particularly in the centre bounce clearances. So Richmond, as you said, they're historically a pretty average clearance team, even, even though they've been like one of the dominant teams. They're, ranked, they're actually ranked 15th 
for clearances where the Saints rank fifth. So I think that just sort of shows the dominance that Paddy Riders had, particularly in set of bounces this year. So the Tigers, they won centre bounce clearances 15 to 5. And overall clearances, they were up by three. From there, they, that gave them territory dominance. So they had 12 more inside 50s as well. So if you give the Tigers that much space in an area they're not historically that good at, they're going to kill you. Some people will say, oh, the Saints, they kicked six goals, 13. But just to the eye, watching that game, they never looked like the better side to me. I think Richmond pretty much dominated most of the game. and They sped up when they needed to, when the Saints were threatening. But as you said, the Saints, those two exclusions really hurt them. Because if they had Paddy Ryder and Jake Carlisle, I reckon this game would have been closer. So Tom Lynch... Not only did he have seven shots, so he kicked two goals, fives, but he also had 17 touches for a key forward, which is pretty big considering limited game time and also six marks. But yeah, I just think the class shone through. Finals experience is massive. I think it's a really good year for St Kilda. They'll be disappointed with the performance, but looking back on it, if you told St Kilda's fans you'll win a final and only lose to Richmond by 31 points in a semi-final, they'll probably take it. But um, Shy Bolton's kicked three goals and with Prestia and Edwards coming back, he added to his package where he can go into the midfield and be a full-time midfielder or he can go forward and he's kicked three goals in a semi-final. So he's a forward midfielder now. He's sort of in the Michael Walters mould a little bit where he can play full-time midfielder and then he can go forward at stages as a small forward. Shane Edwards had two goals and 21 touches. He's the best handballer in the competition. I think some of his handballs might be throws, but um, yeah, he's elite with his handballing. He had 12 handballs and nine kicks. I think that's where he operates best. And also... From a Saints perspective, I really like Hunter Clark. He had 17 touches and he's just so classy and composed with the ball. So whenever a team gets eliminated in finals, everyone asks, what do they need? And everyone's saying, oh, the Saints need to go after a midfielder. But they drafted Hunter Clark and Nick Coffield, I think, two or three years ago. And the midfielders that they supposedly need are right there in their team. They're just playing on a halfback flank. So I reckon look for Hunter Clark and Nick Caulfield to move into the midfield over the next two years. And I think the Saints will have a really good year next year as well. That's a great point that you mentioned there, Hunter Clark. When you just watch him play, he's got this certain confidence about him. He takes yeah. the game on. He takes players on. He's good with selling the candy. and changes the game laterally. That little really move confident. in the last quarter where he sort of dodged an opponent and then ran through and hit a target inside 50 is a little bit of Bontepelli and Scott Penderby about it as well. Slows the game down. Mm. Not sure if he has a basketball background, but I'll tell you what, he's certainly great at laterally moving the ball and you can just tell he's got a very, very strong football IQ. So he's going to be a player for them in the future. But you're absolutely right there, Maxi. There's not too many A-grade midfielders right now inside mids who are absolute bulls and win the ball that actually want to leave their clubs or that are on the free agency market. And yes, Brad Crouch's name has been thrown up multiple times. But it must be said, you wouldn't say he's quite at that A-grade ilk and probably isn't too effective with his disposal. So is that someone that Saints should go for? I don't think so. Specifically, Hunter Clark is more of a midfielder where I think Caulfield, I think he was drafted as a midfielder, but to me, he'll eventually get there. But he sort of reminds me a little bit of Nick Blossom where he's so good as a halfback flanker that they might not need to put him in the midfield. Brad Crouch... I'm not sure. He's a good player, but I think the Saints have got similar midfielders to him. Where he's, I think St Kilda, it's sacrilege to say as a Western supporter, but the type of midfielder they need, not specifically this player, but they were pretty interested in Dylan Shield a couple of years ago. He's the type of midfielder that I'll be looking for at the Saints, where someone who can handle himself around contested ball situations, but also has got the pace to break out of a stoppage. That's more the type of player that I'll be looking for if I was St Kilda. So if they go after Brad Crouch, then if they get him, I wouldn't say it's a bad thing, but I wouldn't splash 
650 to 700k on a Brad Couch type of player if I was St Kilda. Totally agree with you there, Maxi. And it must be said this season they've really nailed their recruits, players who have came in and had an impact from other clubs. But for Ozzy, it must be said, someone of the likes of Brad Hill, who quite ironically is getting paid the most out of those crop of players who have came from other clubs, hasn't quite been as impactful. And it definitely showed in the best and fairest count that St Kilda had. He didn't finish in the top 10. And it must be said, he probably comes into his own when there are longer quarters and his endurance really comes out. But this season wasn't his best. And what does Bradley Hill need to do next season to be more impactful in that St Kilda lineup for Isaac? can only imagine that a steep improvement next year could be dependent on the rest of his side improving as well and a little bit more help on the inside. I agree, though, that someone like Crouch, again, wouldn't be a terrible thing for the Saints to pick him up. But look, as Maxi said, I think the asking price is an important thing because with a price tag like that, obviously becomes a weight of expectation and perhaps there's a little bit of that going on um, inside the mind of Brad Hill. I'm not too sure. Now, guys, one of the moments that absolutely made me fume over the weekend in this Richmond St Kilda game was the tackle from the inspirational skipper of the Richmond Football Club, Trent Cotchen. Now, we know Trent Cotchen makes statements with his tackling, and he's done that over the years. In 2017, he was very lucky to get into a grand final and not get suspended where he ferociously attacked the ball and took Dylan Schill out. That was a bump to the head that knocked him out and somehow he got off. It's a beautiful segue, Maxi, into my question. Gentlemen, my question to you is, should have the MRO had a closer look at Trent Cotchen's tackle? The whistle had been blown. The play did not continue, yet Trent Cotchen felt obliged to go for Zach Jones and take him around the neck in almost a coat hanger type Mm. of tackle. It wasn't a great look. It wasn't given a 50, which I was a little bit surprised about. And it was in the St Kilda 50. So it would have put that St Kilda player right in the goal square. But it was a little bit concerning seeing Zach Jones on the ground afterwards. He was clinching his back. Thankfully, Zach Jones played on. But I want to get your thoughts on this. And if you can, can you compare it to the Ben Long suspension as well? Well, that's the thing. I think the MRO or MRP, whatever it is now, I think last week with Ben Long, they opened up a can of worms where they suspended him on the basis of there was potential to cause serious harm, where if you're going to go around suspending blokes for the potential to cause serious harm, you're going to suspend 100 blokes every single week. So one of the main frustrations with the match review officer is the inconsistency between incidents where the actions are the same, but the injury to the other player is different and as a result, they end up missing weeks. To go from Ben Long to Trent Cotchin, I know Zach Jones, I think he played out the rest of the game was fine. Both of the players who could have been injured played the rest of the game. And Ben Long's missed a semi-final because of the potential to cause serious harm where Trent Cotchin very easily could have hurt Zach Jones. So, I mean, I still didn't like it. I think Trent Cotchin's got a bit of a dodgy history, especially with that 2017 hit on Dylan Shearwood. It still baffles me how he got off and how not many of the media people talk about that incident. I think Trent Cotchin's one of the media darlings. Like, he knocked Dylan Shearl out. Dylan Shield went off with concussion and somehow he got off and he played in a 2017 grand final. So, it's a hard one because... If I had to watch that incident two weeks ago, I said I would have said, no, nah, it looks bad, but that's just fine. But to suspend Ben Long last week on the basis of potential to cause injury, then how can you not suspend everyone who performs an act that's got potential to cause injury? So 
it's just confusing and frustrating. It wasn't a good look, that's for sure. And I think, yeah, that's the thing. As soon as you start throwing the word potential around here, it really does have huge complications. We are talking about, at the core of it, a fierce full contact sport without any form of protection. If you're going to look at it on that basis, as you say, Maxie, well, you have tens, if not a hundred episodes per match of where that could apply. To the neutral fan, yeah, totally agree. It's not nice to see that. As you say, Serbs, it's well after the whistle. Can't see the thought process there. I'm almost in disbelief that this incident hasn't been talked about enough, not only through the mainstream media, but also that the MRO or the MRP didn't even recognise it as a reportable incident. Yes, they obviously look at every incident that happens on the ground that is suspect and obviously review it. But this had, without question, Maxie's point exactly right on that. It did have the serious potential to harm. But to me, Trent Cotchin, off the field, he's a gentleman. He picks up after his teammates. He's done a lot of good off the field. But on the field, unfortunately, he goes out to hurt players in a way that is, at times, really crossing the line. So the AFL, they're in an interesting position right now. If an offence like this happens again, do you make a statement and completely stamp it out with a suspension? Especially with Trent Cotchin's history, do you stamp him out because he's capable of doing this again? And that's the thing. He probably thinks, well, it wasn't even highlighted. I can go out and do that again, and I can go and hurt my opposition players. He also had a crude tackle as well only a week ago on Jared Lyons, and that wasn't spoken about either. But I'm just really disappointed that the AFL didn't take a stand on this, especially because they took such a strong stance the week before. Yeah. Was it Alex Neil Bowen who got suspended for four weeks? I think it's getting to this sort of scenario where the the A-list sort of players who are the more high-profile, it's much harder to suspend them and much easier to suspend blows like Alex Neil Bowen and Ben Long. I think three frustrated Essence supporters on the podcast also hold a bit of resentment to Trent Cotchin for taking Joe's Brown, though. <laughs> so I think there's also a little bit of that here. But whose reputation's been damaged more, Trent Cotchin or Tom Lynch? Probably Cotchin just on the basis that it happened multiple times. And I think, as I sort of said before, to the neutral fan's eye now, he's very much viewed in that light. And so I'm sure he doesn't mind and nor would his teammates or their fans if that's the tone that he's prepared to set in big games. But doesn't do much for popularity. But as Serpus sort of said, it's the kind of thing that you just think, well, it might benefit from a little bit more attention. And Maxie, quick question. Do you think Tom Lynch's reputation has been hurt? I just think he's constantly making stupid decisions. Like all of the incidents this year, I don't think any of them have been suspendable, but they're just stupid. And you ask, why are you doing that? The Alex Witherden thing where he pushed his head into the ground, the um, Sam Collins where he pretended he was going to punch him and then faint away. And now this where he's just like put his knee on Dougal Howard's head. And like, mate, what are you doing? Like, that's not tough. Two of the incidents are when blokes are down, lying down and he's on top of them. Like hurting blokes when they're lying down isn't tough. For such a good player and he's pretty like tough contested mark crash packs like that's where you show that you're a tough player not hidden blokes when they're down on the ground so i think he's been fined something like six times this year so if you're trying to show that you're tough to all your teammates and trying to get them up and about i think there's better ways of doing it i'd like to know who tom lynch's hero was growing up in the forward line it might have been big bad barry hall because i tell you big what bad barry some of the ways he wrestles other players on the ground and possibly the chokehold there might be a bit of brian lake in that as well do you remember when, when Baz chokehold and Thompson from North Melbourne? <laughs> and he just chokehold and he had like four North Melbourne blokes trying to rip him off um, Scott Thompson and he just wouldn't let go. 
Next thing it was Barry against half of the opposition. <laughs> they were like dragging him along the ground and he still had Scott Thompson in headlock. I tell you what, if Tom Lynch does do something dangerous on the field this week, it might be him against the whole Port Adelaide cheer squad and Koshy. Well, so, <laughs> Tom Lynch, you've been warned. Let's get to the other semi-final of the weekend. Saturday, October the 10th, it was the first semi-final, Geelong up against Collingwood at the Gabba. And I think it was almost impossible to see this kind of blowout result. This was a massive, comprehensive statement game. And the Cats finally got Tom Hawkins firing and some of those other contributors in the midfield. Guys, what was your take on this game? Yeah, well, I think sometimes semi-final week is a bit of a reality check for the two elimination final winners. And we saw that this week where sometimes going into semi-final week, we often underrate the two teams who have lost in the qualifying finals and we overrate the two elimination final winners. So I was guilty of that myself. Like having watched that game now, we should have been like, how did we not see this coming? I mean, it's so easy to say this looking back on it now, but Colin sort of played their grand final in Perth and going from Perth back to Queensland, it's probably the hardest trip you can make in the footy. So to do that in a week, as well as all the quarantining, looking back on it, it's so easy to say, oh, how did we not see this coming? So I think you were the only one who tipped along in the end last week, Seb. So well done to you. I'm not doing too well in my final tips. So one from two this week. Yeah, Geelong just smashed them everywhere. It was well talked about when Chris got after the national anthem, he sort of punched his fist and just said to Joel Selwood, get after it and move the ball forward. So Geelong just smashed them all around the ball and then they kept the ball off them. So Geelong won contested ball by 22, um, clearances 34 to 21. And then they had 134 marks to 46. That's a smashing. They had, so they had 120 uncontested marks. And Collingwood, whenever you sort of look back on a Collingwood game, you think of all their midfielders in like a regular season where it's not time restricted. You think Pendlebury's got 30, Adams probably got 30, Trelaw's got 30, and all these folks getting really high possessions. Collingwood had 200 possessions for the game. Like that's a smashing. They only have 200 possessions for the game. So... Six Cats had more possessions than the highest Collingwood ball getter, which was Adam Chalk. So it just shows that um, Geelong smashed him around the ball and then Collingwood couldn't get the ball back off him. So Geelong just kept taking uncontested marks. But the things I really liked was Dangerfield forward. He, obviously, he kicked four goals, two of those um, brilliant bananas from the boundary line, which I'll touch on in a sec. But it also frees up Tom Hawkins. So similar to Lynch, Hawkins had four goals, but he also had 17 possessions. So when you put Dangerfield there, it also allows Hawkins to spend his time in the goal square and kick goals, but then get further up the ground, which sort of releases him. And Hawkins, further up the ground, he's also um, a little bit like Franklin, like where he's a really good kick going inside 50. And I think that's because the key forwards know how they want the ball kicked to them. And Mitch Duncan, <laughs> he had like something like 22 possessions in the first half. And yeah, I think he only ended up with 30 for the game, but... Levi Greenwood went to him at the start and they were all saying, oh, Mitch Duncan's in for a long night after Levi Greenwood towered up Tim Kelly the week previous. But no one went near Mitch Duncan after that. Yeah, sensational performance from Geelong. Yeah, Geelong were absolutely prime for this performance. And you mentioned the Magpie midfielders dropping off. I mean, Adam Trelaw, as you mentioned, the highest possession getter with 18. He's got a season average of 27. You've got Taylor Adams who only managed to get the ball 17 times. And gentlemen, what did you make of Nathan Buckley's post-game comments regarding Brody Grundy? Because he has looked like a player, Brody Grundy, who has either been carrying an injury 
or just really, really struggling with his mental health. And to be honest, this hub life would have affected a range of players differently. You have obviously a very, very tight-knit group who are all embracing the challenges, but you'll have other players who have young families like Jake Carlisle who just couldn't wait. They just really needed to leave the hub. And you feel like you're just playing footy every three or four days and that's your life. And away from that, you obviously see your teammates and you're in meetings. But besides that, you've got a lot of time to yourself. And as good as FaceTime calls are to your family and your loved ones and potentially your partner, it's just not the same as them being there and living your regular lifestyle. And so I think Nathan Buckley did a pretty good job alluding to that and kind of bringing a bit of light to the fact that Brody Grundy had an extraordinary season last season and has warranted the money that he's on, but clearly it wasn't working for him this season. And he was one of those guys playing footy this season who just didn't have the impact because of the circumstances. What are your thoughts on that, guys? Yeah, I think he's sort of someone who suffers by his own past performances and like how good he's been in the past. And you're always comparing him to his last two years. Having said that, everyone's sort of expecting Buckley to come out and say, oh, yeah, he's been carrying an injury. And as you said, he sort of deflected with, there's a number of Collingwood players who haven't liked hub set up and hasn't been good for their mental health. But that might be the case. The other possibility is maybe he's just out of form. So no one's brought that up. Everyone's looking for, oh, he's injured. Oh, now he's mental health. Maybe he's just playing poorly. I think Reece Stanley was actually really good on the weekend. He didn't get much credit, but Reece Stanley's actually got a pretty good record against um, Brody Grundy. And I think one of those reasons is because Brody Grundy's, one of his main strengths is his aerobic capacity and he's just running all over the ground where Reece Stanley's got the ability to go with him. That's probably Reece Stanley's biggest strength as well. So... Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm wrong. We don't know that. That's the thing. <laughs> maybe he's out of form. Maybe he's struggling mentally. But yeah, who knows? And until we hear Brody actually speak about it and yeah. answer the question, we won't be sure about what the real reason is. Fryzy, what's your take on the situation? It's a really tricky one for this season, boys, isn't it? All those factors. It must be tough hub life. I think everyone's aware of that. And so for that reason alone, I think not as critical, and I'm sure they're all very much understanding. I mean, teams never want to lose finals matches or never want their season to be over. I get the impression that there might have just been a few players around the whole system that, more than anything, are just super relieved that this season for them is done with. There could be many others as well. Absolutely, Fryzy, and you touched on it beautifully there. It's such an emotional roller coaster football, and especially last week, having the ecstasy of winning that game that no one expected them to win. Their backs against the wall, really hard quarantine for them, and then winning that game, and then the agony of coming up against Geelong and just almost having nothing left in the tank. And that's exactly the way it looked like. Their attack on the ball, you just look at some vision of them going for the ball and trying to hunt and trying to chase. They just had no energy. Geelong had a lot to prove and Collingwood, well, they felt like they proved it all last week. So it's an incredible mental battle as well as it is physical. Look, it really is. And as you said, Collingwood very much may have run their full course the week before. I know they only scraped in, but the effort to get that huge win over in the West. And look, I suppose at least we we come to prelim final weeks. You might well argue the four most consistent teams during the home and away season are the ones still there. They are there and they're ready to go mentally and physically. (laughs) Preliminary final weekend. And as we mentioned from the top of the show, it is one of our absolutely favourite weekends in the football calendar. It all starts... On Friday night, October the 9th, it is the second 
preliminary final. It's Port Adelaide at their fortress, the Adelaide Oval, up against the Tigers. Earlier this season, Port Adelaide had a very comprehensive win, but equally, the players that are available for this game that weren't available in that earlier game is quite significant, especially mm. on the Richmond side. I did see a list of all the players that didn't play that game on both sides, and Port Adelaide actually had a fairly decent list, but I think, as you said, Richmond, more experienced, probably better players, but uh, we're talking about our favourite prelim finals. This one sort of reminds me a little bit of Hawthorne versus Fremantle in 2015, where Port Adelaide had the week off and they'll be playing in front of their home crowd, where Richmond are the reigning champs, all the finals experience and they're coming to the hostile environment so I can't wait for this game a few of the question marks to me looking at this game is can Port's defense hold up against Richmond's forward line especially with Lynch and Revolt is a big forward going to get hold of Port Adelaide's defense in a big final so this is the big test for it can they hold Tom Lynch to to less than three goals if they can they'd be having a, a good night and also, the midfield battle is going to be huge when you look at Wines, Rockcliffe, Boak, Pau Pepper, Ebert for the Port Adelaide. And then Dusty and Edwards are probably the two midfielders who are in good form for Richmond. But I don't think the others are in great form when you look at Cochin, Prestia and it. Kane Lambert and a few others. Also for Port Adelaide, where are the other goals going to come from other than Charlie Dixon? So it'll be a little bit of a worry for Port Adelaide if you get to maybe halfway through the second quarter and they haven't kicked too many goals and they just keep bombing it along to Charlie. That'll be um, one thing to watch out for is where, where are their goals coming from and are they just kicking it along to Charlie all the time or, or are they finding other avenues? So, um, And also, where does Dusty play? So we'll talk about danger. Play predominantly forward for the Cats, where I think Dusty will probably play predominantly midfield time. His goal scoring and his scoring involvement have been down from previous years. So I think apart from Edwards... I don't think um, Richmond's midfield is in fantastic form, so I think that's why Dusty will be playing um, majority time in the middle. But in terms of a tip, I mean, I'm leaning towards Richmond, but I, I'm hoping Port Adelaide get up. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean towards the Tigers too, I think. Didn't really cross my mind that analogy of that 2015 prelim final, but it makes sense, and we know that Richmond just have a knack and a way of getting it done in these games. They, It's almost like the more you turn the pressure and the expectation up, the better they handle it. And as for expectation, well, Port Adelaide carry a lot of that now into this game. Home prelim off the back of the season they've had. Gents, can I just ask, is it going to feel like a true home game for Port, given that, of course, the prison bars are not permitted. (laughs) No, they're not. And they're only just managing to tussle with wearing those prison bars for their home showdown clashes. So there is a lot of ill feeling here about the prison bars. Will they be able to wear them in the grand final? Uh, That's a very, very good question. I'm not sure. They're going to want to wear them. The question is, if Geelong get in... Who knows if they'll be allowed to. But if Brisbane make it, then I think they would be allowed to. A little bit of a clash, as you mentioned there, with Geelong and the battle of the barcodes. So there might be a sight (laughs) for sore eyes for those fans who are at the game and us watching on the television. But it's a very interesting point, especially considering last time they played Richmond in a final was in 2014. And... They did wear the prison bars that time. Mm. I think if Trent Cotchin learned anything from that game, any <laughs> win, win, do not kick into the wind, Trent. I reckon, for memory, that might have even been the first year that Adelaide Oval was was properly used. Talk about one-sided affairs over that game a quarter, was over. Time. quarter that, time. That was one of them, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they won't want to repeat of that again, although the Port Adelaide fans might. It was quite an entertaining afternoon, that, for them. That, that of course, was one of our... Much loved Sunday afternoon elimination finals yes. that we don't see anymore. Bring it back. 
And don't we miss them. Bring it back. Now, I found a very interesting stat throughout the week, and this is a maxi statistician Tonner stat right here. Richmond have not lost twice to the same team in a season since 2016. And yes, this does include finals. More notably, if we go to 2017, they lost to the Crows throughout the home and away season, but then they defeated them in the grand final. And in the preliminary final, they, of course, defeated the GWS Giants and they lost to them in round nine in the regular season. Same thing happened. 2019, they lost to GWS in the regular season, but then defeated them in the grand final. They did lose to St Kilda earlier in the season and they managed to rectify that loss in last week's semi-final. Port Adelaide, as we know, they won earlier this season. Will history repeat itself for the Tigers? That is a big question. I'll be fascinated to see who Dylan Grimes lines up on, gentlemen, because Charlie Cameron played him extremely well last time, got him up the ground. That is going to be a key for them winning this game. But they've got to be ferocious like they were against Geelong. They've got to attack Richmond where they're getting the ball, not worrying about the overlap and worrying about the man who's running out the back. They've got to attack them front on. It's what they did well against Geelong. They've got to get that tackling pressure up if they are any chance of winning this game. You mentioned Dustin Martin possibly playing more minutes in the midfield, Maxi. Who gets that matchup? And we heard earlier this week, Tom Jonas said, we're going to worry about ourselves. We're going to worry about our own system and what we can control. But knowing Dustin Martin's record in finals, especially prelims and grand finals, you have to pay some attention to him. I don't think they'll start with anyone tagging him or anything in the midfield. They'll be responsible for him around stoppages. I would think maybe a Rockcliffe or Dow Pepper, maybe even Wines. I wouldn't think Boak would do it. And when he goes forward, I think Tom Jonas would probably be the answer. You mentioned Dylan Grimes. I think the obvious matchup for him is probably Robbie Gray. Robbie Gray is pretty dangerous around goals and Dylan Grimes. He's tall, but he can play on smalls. As we saw Charlie Cameron the week before, he, he usually has a pretty good record over. So, yeah. That's got to be priority number one for Port Adelaide coming into this, doesn't it? That and containing Tom Lynch, of course, deep in the forward line. And just a little note as well, gentlemen, Jack Rewald, he's been out of form the last couple of weeks, hasn't been himself, did kick some important goals against Brisbane early in that game. I just suspect he has a knack of getting up for big finals games. He wasn't leaping too well last week. He was trying to go for some big marks, crash the pack, similar to his counterpart, Lynch, wasn't doing it to great effect. Does he have two big games left in him? I believe he does. And at least one big game for him. So he's my man to just look out for. Danger signs, especially that Port Adelaide back line. We've spoken about them. They're going to be under a lot of pressure, especially trying to keep Lynch down. Someone like a Trent McKenzie, if we suspect he does go to Tom Lynch, he's going to have his hands full. Let's get on to the second preliminary final which is ironically the first preliminary final which is on (laughs) Saturday October the 10th Brisbane Lions and Geelong 740 at the Gabba this is going to be an absolute beauty this game and a very difficult one to tip as well guys what are we looking forward to in this game and more importantly who do we see getting in to a historic grand final. Really looking forward to this game as well. Going to be another hostile environment for the Victorian team. The Gabba will be rocking. But um, as I mentioned briefly, where's Danger going to play? He'll play 90% forward. I would think they'll probably give him five minutes here and there in the midfield if need be. But who plays on him? I think Gardner's probably 
the obvious one. Does Leicester get on him? He played on Revolt in the qualifying final, maybe even Stasovic, who's really improved this season. But also, Geelong's defence has been really good, um, which sort of worries me a little bit. I know Brisbane's forward line, they're really good against Richmond, but you still look at them and say they're probably a a little bit less experienced than the Geelong backline. You look at those Geelong blokes, they all seem to have over 100, 150 games and obviously Harry Taylor and Lockie Anderson have got even more than that. And you look at Brisbane's forward line, you just question, you know, are they have they got enough finals experience to stand up to that pressure under such experienced um, defenders that Geelong have? And also, as I mentioned um, with the other game, the midfield battle, when you get to pre-league final week's huge and this one's no exception. When you look at the lines, you've got Neil, Lyon, Zorko, McCluggage, Berry, etc. And then Geelong, you've got Selwood, Menegola, Duncan, Guthrie and Parfit, all in good form. And also Dangerfield's going to go in there, I'm sure, at times. And also the big matchup of Tommy Hawkins versus Harris Andrews. So a lot to look forward to. In terms of my tip, just a hunch I'm going towards Brisbane, I think. Geelong are in good form, but a sort of... How many times have we seen Geelong lose a qualifying final, win a semi-final, and then lose a program final? It sort of seems to be a little bit of a habit over recent years since 2011. So, yeah, my hunch is Brisbane at the moment. And you are wearing a burgundy shirt as well there, Maxi. The maroon is coming through. It looks like maroon, at least, from our panel here. Yeah, so he's definitely jumping on the Brisbane Lion bandwagon. And as you mentioned there, lots of reasons to as well. Fryzy, we get to you and your tip, the highly anticipated tip of the umpire. And I am excited to hear your thoughts on this game, sir. Oh, God, it's, it's tough, isn't it? Still don't know which way to go for this one, but I'm going to go Brisbane as well just again. I can't get past the Geelong's issue of getting past the prelim final stage. I know Chris Scott said, you know, don't make such a big deal of it, whatever. It's lazy criticism, but it seems to just keep happening, like we said last Mm. week. I'm not sure. I know that they've got the experience and the know-how where it counts in these matches, but there's a lot of Geelong guys that also haven't made it to the big one yet. So, There's pressure on both in that regard. I do feel just a little almost out of sentimental value only that it might just be a little case of the stars perhaps aligning for Brisbane where they go three home games in a row in the final series and who knows, perhaps even three wins. I know that they're only a third of that story is complete, but look, I just get this hunch. It's really not based off much more than that. So Brisbane just for mine. We've got two Brisbane. What am I going to say? You may ask. Brisbane were so impressive two weeks ago against Richmond. They just absolutely listened to my advice and they got to work. They were aggressive. They were nailing their set shot accuracy and they were taking the game on at the ideal times. They are at home for this game. But equally, this has been a happy hunting ground for the Cats this season. They've had some massive wins at the Gabba. So they aren't afraid of the venue. Are they afraid of the crowd? And are they afraid of what's at stake? Absolutely, they are. This could well be Dangerfield's last chance in the prime that he's in with the midfield minutes that he can still achieve to get that elusive premiership. Can he do it and can the Cats do it? It's very hard to tip against the Cats in this one. Just seeing the amount of experience that they have and knowing that the Brisbane Lions are going to have to come up against a quality experience lineup, it's a big ask for them, especially considering they've just gotten off that high of winning their very first final with the group that 
they have. I hope they haven't celebrated too hard. I hope they've got their focus caps on. I am concerned for them. So if the Lions come out hungry, well, they might catch Geelong off guard. I'm going to tip Geelong in this one to break all of their recent records and their recent form that Chris Scott holds in the finals. But obviously, like you gents, my heart is saying the Lions because three home finals in a row and won a grand final would be absolutely wonderful for the state of Queensland and for their team and for Chris Fagan. So many good stories out of Brisbane. I hope they do it, but I'm just tipping Geelong in this one. Peace. Ouch. Someone's going to tip zero this week. Then. It's going to be exciting to see what happens. Is it going to be an all-Victorian grand final or are we going to have an all-interstate grand final? Those two possibilities are certainly there. Let's get on to one of our favourite segments on the show. It is Bring It Back, Give It The Sack, Have A Crack. My back and my crack. All right, this week we are talking about psychic animals because just about every country in the world has their very own psychic (laughs) animal that can predict sporting and political outcomes better than most paid experts. Now, I'm not saying, however, that these animals don't get paid. Like most, the more tips they get correctly, the more popularity and credibility they receive. What kind of animals are in the sporting predicting arena? You may ask, well, look no further than Paul the Octopus. That's right, Maxie, the Seattle Krakens distant cousin. How good is that? Not only that, he's also German as well. How good is that? And he is offered two boxes that contain food and have a different country's flag on the outside. So this octopus is notorious for predicting all the correct results for the German soccer team when they play in the World Cup results. So he might be a handy inclusion to have when doing our tips on the show. We have Achilles, the deaf Russian cat. We have Shaheen, the camel. We have Shita. That's right. That is the correct pronunciation. Shita, the Polish elephant. We have Mani, the parakeet. We have Mystic Marcus, who is a pig. Now, Mystic Marcus... He's got a great record. He's got a 100% track record of predicting not only sporting results, but also the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. But my favourite on that topic is the 2016 election sharks. Now, have a listen to this, gentlemen. There was a shark called Trump. From reliable sources was quite an orangely tan shark. (laughs) But the Trump shark was up against the Clinton shark. And the way they determined who was going to win the presidential election was what shark could swim further. Trump swam 652 miles, whilst Clinton only swam 510, reflecting the electoral college results, but not the popular vote. She's always been a loser. (laughs) And the reason why I bring it up on the Bring It Back section today, gentlemen, is because this year the Australian Premiership Cup visited Mackay in northern Queensland where Molly the Roo was presented with the four-team jumpers and predicted that the Geelong Cats would be lifting the 2020 Premiership Trophy. Now, many Queenslanders, however, were furious with (laughs) Molly the Roo's Premiership tip and so they've demanded we find an animal 
that can give them the desired result. So, fellas, I throw this to you. Which international animal tipster should we be grabbing to try and decide who's going to win this year's premiership? Jesus, you've done your research. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Sure has. You're very obsessed with animals and football as well. But, um... Yeah, I don't know. What was his name? Mystic Marcus has got his bat in a thousand. Get him in, I reckon. I'm of the same belief. Absolutely. Let's let's give this a go. Can I just ask, gents, what happens when they inevitably get it wrong? <laughs> and is this a permanent thing, or is just this for for 2020 finals? What do we think? Well, I'm a little bit worried about the octopus because calamari is pretty big over where this octopus comes from. In Germany. Yes, calamari. <laughs> <laughs> the big question is. Is Molly the Roo correct? Do you agree with Molly's tip? Well, seeing that I uh, tip Brisbane, no. But <laughs> what do I know? <laughs> the kangaroo might know more than me. Molly might have some football IQ. We do not know. So bring back the animals in our game. I've been talking about it a lot, as you mentioned. I'm obsessed with them in the game. And it would be fantastic to see some of our own native animals make the correct tips. But the Queenslanders, they're not so happy with that <laughs> tip from Molly. Give us a sack. The Toyota fan zone. Now, listen, 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 listen to me before you jump down my throat, gentlemen. To make up for the lack of crowds in the stadiums, of course, this season, Seven's AFL broadcast teamed up with Zoom to show fan celebrations in their homes via the Toyota fan zone. Collingwood and Richmond earlier this season received over 1.2 million viewers nationally, including our man in America, Pat McAfee. And people were certainly showing their support from home every single time a goal was kicked. And it's fair to say the Toyota fan zone has been a huge success. But we've seen some cameos recently. That has pricked my attention. We've seen cameos from cricketing stars such as Elise Healy and Mitchell Stark. We see retired legends in our game like Stevie Milne. Weirdly enough, weirdly enough the tip rat, he had a cutout of Alf Stewart Room, which I don't know if you guys can decipher this for me, but it was a little bit strange. Yeah, I don't know what was happening there. <laughs> oh, goodness. Strange is understating it. Wow. He must be a fan of Home and Away or something else. But the cameos <laughs> got even weirder on Saturday night footy. <laughs> Collingwood were getting absolutely pounded by the Cats. And who should appear on our screens when Collingwood kicked their second goal in over three quarters of footy? A rather ballooned Dale Thomas. Oh, boy. Hasn't retirement been nice for Daisy Thomas? My God. Wow. <laughs> he was showing off his chins, but he was weirdly patting a stuffed magpie. <laughs> you can say that's a little bit out of the ordinary to see that on live television. I say get rid of this stupidity, give it the sack, and get some real fans on those screens, or at least... Some real celebrities. What are our thoughts, gentlemen? You're not getting rid of the fan zone altogether. You're just getting rid of the past players' cameos. Correct. Getting rid of the people on there who are using and abusing it for all the wrong reasons. I think we need something a little bit more original from the fans. If you're on the fan zone, you need to come up with something a bit more original. I reckon we try to get you on there, sir. Maybe for the granny. We'll try and see if we can get you on. But a lot of the people on the fan zone, they just wave. Maybe come up with something a little bit more original. When a certain player kicks a goal, we almost need a certain celebration set up for that player. If Dersma kicks a goal, get the arrow out. 
get the arrow out and someone actually have a proper bow and arrow from an archery club to come in for that exact celebration. Maxi, I like your thought on this. Fryzy, can we get some umpires in the fan zone as well? When an umpire makes a good decision, can there be a the time for all the umpires going, yes, that was a great bounce. Did you see how high it went? That's right. For all the guys whose season is over, I mean, there's only three more matches to come. So go figure. We don't need that many more umpires. There must be 20, 30 something that have got nothing else to do. Get them in there. Serbs, I agree, should have ticket number one as the founding father of this concept. Absolutely. We're going to get you onto the granny, mat. You're going to be in the fan. My hand up happily, gents. I will support whatever team they give me. I am happy to switch it in between goals. I want to be on both screens. I want to be controversial. I want to be authentic. Gentlemen, it'd be a pleasure to have you on board as well. I reckon we say stuff it and we'll try to get you on for the game, mate. Let's get to have a crack. Bring down the cup from the sky, I say. So, in college football over in the United States, one of their biggest traditions is bringing in a parachuter into the stadiums. Now, at Tiger Stadium in Georgia... The parachuters make their way into the ground from the sky and when they hit the sporting field, the whole crowd absolutely erupts. And lo and behold, they are holding with them the mighty trophy. Now, this week, the AFL Grand Final musical talent was announced consisting of an all-Australian lineup, probably due to the fact that we can't actually get any international talent in the country at the moment, but it is very, very good to see Australian talent being acknowledged and recognised. Plenty of native Queenslanders in that batch as well. So hopefully that makes up for Molly the Kangaroo. (laughs) Now, as I read through these artists, the idea to deliver the AFL Cup from the sky became even more clearer to me, gentlemen. DMAs, the three-piece rock band, have two songs called Lay Down and in the air. Let's get to the other band as well. Cub Sport, following the skydiving trend, they have a song called Such Great Heights and Air. And it's not over yet, gents, <laughs> because Wolf Mother, while well, they have the song Where Eagles Have Been and Electric Fields, the other band. I don't know how they're going to fit all these artists in, by the way. I don't know. There's so many artists. Seven minutes, half song. Yeah. I don't know how they're going to do it. They have a song called no other heights, but the big headliner, Shepard, they comprehensively and conclusively confirm my beliefs with the song Geronimo. That's right. <laughs> I'm saying have a crack at delivering the cup from high above the Brisbane night sky. Gentlemen, what are our thoughts? <laughs> I'm not too sure. Um, it'll be interesting to see. Do you remember when Mark Rusciuto came down? He was like sort of hanging from some sort of ropes. Sort of thing. He had a very tight harness on. Was it the 2017 when Adelaide won? It was, I think so. And uh, that harness, goodness me, he uh, <laughs> that that was that, that was nerve wracking to watch, if I recall. He was to count him. That's a count. <laughs> Absolutely. I just don't want to be the person standing uh, at the ground that's got to catch the falling cup from that height. And look, I know we've spoken about this a lot, and I am obsessed with the animals. You gentlemen know that. We've spoken about getting big cats at the game. And wouldn't this be an incredible circus act if they were able to drop the cup from the sky and then they had a Brisbane lion and they had a Richmond tiger fighting for the drop of the cup? Well, (laughs) 
Oh, surfs. <laughs> well, I like this. We've sort of tied all of these in together into, into one idea now. I mean, it is the year of Tiger King, so maybe we're in for a Tigers and Lions grand final. So I wanted to mention one thing with the have a crack. I heard a really good idea um, with Dan Butler, who kicked the goal, and there was sort of a little argument over whether or not he got it before the siren or after the siren. I reckon next year, the LED lighting around the ground should go like black in the last like, 30 seconds, and as the siren goes, it should turn red or some other colour so you can see exactly when the siren goes and if the player got his kick away before the siren or not. I reckon that's a good idea. I don't mind that because it might give us the most up-to-date, you know, time of when the when the siren goes because you, you might have that little delay from when the siren actually goes to when the umpire hears it and then whistles. Mm. So maybe that would just remove a little bit of doubt. Maxie, I'm going to take you a step further with this one. I think it was one of our very early episodes on the show and we mentioned how much we like the zing bales in the cricket. Mm. What about getting some zing posts to light up when the siren goes? That'd be pretty conclusive. I wouldn't mind the zing posts, but I reckon the LED lighting around the fence is the way to go. Certainly a lot more reliable than the rollover paper that they used to have at the MCG mm. and the ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-dodo-dodo-dodo would always pop up and Amy and Wizard and God knows what else back in the day. Dodo. What happened to Dodo? Where'd that go? Bring back Dodo and Sakatar, yeah. I reckon. <laughs> Sakatar. <laughs> They were the days. Talk about an anthem. Don't worry about never tear us apart. Get Sakatar in your stadium. Get that as your major sponsor. (laughs) On that joyous note, gentlemen, thank you so, so much for joining me this week on In the Ballpark. Thank you, Serps. Thank you, Serp. Enjoy, boys. See you next week for the big one. And thank you out there for listening to another triumphant episode of In the Ballpark. Make sure you like and subscribe to our Facebook page and our Instagram page. We cannot wait to bring you the grand final edition next week of In the Ballpark. Until then, enjoy the weekend of footy and keep those nails intact for the grand final.